Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. All right, I've got to do something different. I, I have to be free, and I want to free as many people as I can in the process because I think we're, I think we're placed on this earth to do more than trade our hour for dollars. I think we're placed on this earth to do more than just pay bills and then create more bills to pay those bills. And I don't know many people who actually get to do the thing that they would do if money was not an issue in their world. for tuning in to Dreamcatchers, where we make things happen. Dreamcatchers was formally launched to unlock the hidden potential in successful, self-motivated individuals who desire to take their life's work to the next level but need support to evolve. We are a collective group of professionals with various backgrounds that use our talents to assist those individuals in realizing their wildest dreams by providing education, inspiration, and direction. This podcast is where we share the lessons we've learned along the way to catching our dreams and give you some context around the how and the why to each approach to put you further ahead on the journey to catching your dream. Are you ready? So tonight we will be hearing from our very own Jerome Myers, who will be discussing the mission that he and a small group of his friends have embarked on by deciding to um, purchase a thousand apartment units and free a hundred people from work they are not passionate about. Good evening, everybody. Super excited about what 2019 has in store for us. And it'll really kind of get kicked into high gear when we close on this 26-unit apartment building here in the next two weeks. But that's kind of the end of the story, so let me back up. So I grew up in Fayetteville, North Carolina, the son of a soldier and a stay-at-home mom for the majority of my growing up years. Left there, went to North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University and got a degree in engineering, even though sophomore year I decided I didn't want to be an engineer. Had two choices at the end of graduation. I could go start my career or go start a Ph.D. program at the University of South Florida. I decided to start my career because I wanted to be self-sustaining, and so I moved to Virginia and started working for a power company. Did engineering work for a few years, even though it was dispassionate. 
my whole thing was to get off into a leadership track and start leading teams and coaching folks and helping them kind of realize their wildest dreams. I guess my goal when I was there was to be the youngest executive at the company and felt like I was on a really good path to achieve that goal until about 2009. As many of you remember, the recession hit and there was a lot of downsizing and adjustments to corporate structures. And while I wasn't furloughed, laid off, or impacted in that way, I'd taken a lateral move into a position that I wasn't excited about, really had work hours that I didn't want to do. You know, at times working one to 11, other times I was working on weekends. And my mentor who had kind of created that opportunity for me, his position was eliminated. He was a senior vice president. And so I spent basically 30 months in a job I hated. And it seemed like there was no way for me to get out. My performance in that job got worse and worse, ended up getting write-ups. And as I told my supervisor, I don't know how Jerome could go from sugar to shit in a matter of six months. I remember getting, like, on a scale of one to five on the performance appraisals, I was getting ones and twos. And it was all related to attitude and not, you know, my ability to do the job. So eventually, somebody gave me a, a pass out of that role and moved me into another job. And they said, yeah, you got six months to either get a promotion or we're going to cut your bonus. And at this point, I was already making over six figures, so the bonus was important to me. It it kind of gave me validation that, you know, I was doing what I was supposed to do. It got close to this six months. Headhunter called me and said, hey, I got a great opportunity for you. And so I left the power company and went to a consulting firm and went into a leadership role where I was supposed to be growing a small office for that group. Within six months of being there, my boss asked me to commit timesheet fraud, and so I decided that wasn't the place for me to be. I gave back a $10,000 sign-in bonus and left that company and went to another. In that space, I was able to grow my salary like another 20 or 30 k So at that point, I was rolling in it, but I had to give up a lot of stuff that I was passionate about. In this new role, I was traveling the country and at times the world, and so one thing, my one true love from being a child was football. I had to give up coaching, which kind of turned my world upside down. It was it was a place where everything seemed to be all right. It was a place where you could yell and scream and just kind of forget about what other people thought about you or how they felt about you. And that quiet place, that that place of refuge made all the other chaotic things in my world seem okay. But I gave that up for a dollar. There were many times where I would be flying back into Richmond on a Friday evening after being somewhere else in the country and seeing football stadiums lit up and seeing the crowds and seeing people running up and down the field. And there were times where I would tear up and say, that's where I should be. That's where I had my greatest impact. That's where I was helping young men who were kind of in their most vulnerable place in life shape their ideas and thoughts about what was actually possible for them in their next four to six, maybe 10 years. So went through that opportunity, and then a new opportunity came up where I was going to be responsible for you know, 3,000 square miles of construction and permitting and engineering design. 
it was the opportunity for me to build a business without having to leave corporate America. And we took that business and we grew it from two employees to 120 employees over the span of about eight months. And then that first year, we did about $20 million of business. There was very little support from executives. In fact, I had one boss that was, I had three bosses that year. One was in Kansas City, the other was in Texas, and then eventually I had one that was in uh, Cary, North Carolina. And everything was great until the week before Christmas. And our client comes and says, yeah, we appreciate everything you did, but you need to cut your workforce by 50% because we don't need you guys to do as much work as you did last year. And I remember arguing with my boss on Christmas Eve and him saying, you just need to let them go. And me telling him, I don't think that we should do that. I think we need to figure out a way to be more creative. We need to readjust. We need to reallocate. We're going to need them in, you know, six months, eight months. So it doesn't make sense to put people on the street if we don't have to, and especially not at this time of year. But of course I lost. So we went from 150 to 75 or 80 folks and it was the first Christmas where I didn't sleep. I lost my appetite. There were a few days I didn't eat. And I spent a great deal of time trying to figure out how we were going to put it all back together again. We went another year, did another $20 million of business with a smaller group. And so it showed us that, you know, maybe there was some waste in what we were doing before, but we were figuring it all out because it had never been done before. And now we had a system and, you know, we have full staff, so we're able to accomplish more with fewer people but we have also had a longer time. And so then a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving, another similar conversation with the client, but instead of cutting the workforce in half, it's we don't need any of you anymore. We're going to use somebody else. And that hurt. You know, I, I can think of Anne, who was married to a person in the Navy, and they were getting ready to get moved to a new duty station. And she asked her husband to basically put his career on hold or to go out to sea by himself for a year so that she could stay and continue to work on this project that had basically become her life. And while there were just a ton of people who had similar sacrifices, I just remember her story in particular just because it was one of the first ones I heard where people were saying, we believe in this, we believe in you, and we think this is life-changing, not only for our careers, but for the people that we're helping in the project that we're doing. And today, you know, it still hurts. The holidays still suck for me because while we're not laying anybody off in the fourth quarter to make numbers at my company now, I know that it's happening all over the country, and I don't really understand why it has to be that way, but it is. And so... As we, as I was trying to figure out, well, what do I do next? How do I do it? I'd been dabbling in real estate for probably three years at that point, loaning money to investors, working on projects, listening to podcasts and watching videos, getting myself educated on, you know, what the fundamentals of real estate investing are. How do you protect yourself? How do you, how do you actually make money at it? How do you scale? just really trying to hone my craft and become an expert at something that I, I saw had the ability to set people free 
when I when I say free, I mean not having to trade your hours for dollars. And I think on the most simple level, we either trade our hours for dollars as a um, employee, where we clock in and we got our, we work our forty hours, or it's the the other uh, way we get compensated, which is by salary, right? Where you get paid one hundred and thirty thousand dollars a year to do this job, and yeah, you think you can work forty hours, but people end up working fifty, sixty, seventy hours a week in exchange for you know their ten thousand dollar paycheck at the end of the month, and it feels better than putting in your timesheet that you worked eight hours this day or ten hours that day. But at the end of the day, if you don't show up, then you don't get paid unless you are taking your paid time off or whatever the other benefits are. And so when I looked at the ultra-wealthy, and I'm not and I won't even say ultra wealthy, when I look at the multimillionaires, I, I saw that they either own businesses and not a business where they do the work, but they own a business and somebody they have a manager who actually handles the day-to-day and they come in and they look at reports or they come up with a new idea, set the strategic direction for the organization or their investors where they're deploying their capital and letting operators make money with their money, and in turn, they're making money by letting the operators use their money. And I got really excited about that. I'd always, I I remember distinctly when I was in college, I had a job at a fitness center, and it was on a Sunday. It was like 3 o'clock. Nobody had come into the fitness center the entire time I was there that day. And so I closed up early. I remember the, the guy that I reported to, came to my room and was like, what are you doing? Why, aren't, why is it closed? Somebody said they wanted to use it. I mean, there was like an hour left in the opening. But I knew at that point that I didn't want to be the person that had to be sitting somewhere waiting for a certain time to come so that I could say that my shift was over. And so that kind of paralleled with being salary and then growing this business and then having – somebody else decide that, hey, we don't need your services or any of the people that have been helping you. We don't need their services either. All of those things kind of culminated in this, all right, I've got to do something different. I I have to be free, and I want to free as many people as I can in the process because I think we're, I think we're placed on this earth to do more than trade our hour for dollars. I think we're placed on this earth to do more than just pay bills and then create more bills to pay those bills. And I don't know many people who actually get to do the thing that they would do if money was not an issue in their world. And I remember when I picked my career path or picked what I was going to study in school, that it was all about I wanted nice things. I wanted a certain lifestyle. And so I needed to pick something that was going to afford me that lifestyle and then the other stuff I could do in my free time. For me, it was, all right, go work all day as an engineer or project manager, and then you can go coach football after that because that's what you're truly passionate about. You know, I made like $2,000 coaching football, and I probably spent 40 hours a week doing it. Like it just didn't work um, mathematically. But, you know, it gave me a ton of fulfillment and 
even to this day, years and years and years later, when when I run across players and to hear them talk about the impact that I had on them or to see the trajectory, trajectory that they went on after conversations that we had about career and fulfillment and some of the other more lofty, airy conversations. It's just amazing to see how much impact you can have on somebody if you show them that you truly care about them and you want the best for them. And it was interesting. I think probably the most interesting thing that I took away from those experiences over, I don't know, seven or ten years I did it, was it doesn't matter if you live in an area that's full of poverty or you live in an affluent area. All those kids that they were trying to work through, whether, you know, dad wasn't there because he was in prison or dad wasn't there because things didn't work out with him and mom or dad wasn't there because he worked 80 hours so that they could live in the house that they lived in or they could drive the cars that they drove. Like, dad missing was an issue regardless of what school system we were in. They had issues about girls. They had issues with drugs. I mean, it just... It didn't matter where I sat when I got down to really knowing the kids and what their experience was. I I just saw so many similarities. That, for me, was probably some of the most fulfilling work that I've ever done in my life. Until I started coaching with folks in their career and folks making transitions from careers to real estate or careers to another career, whatever it was, and seeing adults who maybe forgot about their dreams and I guess I should, probably should have opened up with this. So my thesis on life is dreams should be real. And I hope everybody who's on this call or everybody who hears this call agrees with me. Because if you, if you don't agree that your dreams should be real, then I don't know how you can ever have fulfillment in your life. I think the world spends a lot of time telling us that we can't have what we think we should have. And it's up to us to decide whether or not we're going to pay the price, whatever that price is, in order to get what we want. But I think often there's a real disconnect between what we want, what we're willing to sacrifice for. And if we can't reconcile the two or we can't say, hey, this is worth it at whatever cost, then we end up in a place where we don't have what we, we say we want. We have what we're willing to sacrifice for. And so if I come back full circle, uh, it's probably been a long way. But if you follow me, it, the real estate piece comes back full circle. So I guess three or four years into my career, I thought about leaving school and becoming an attorney because I wanted to do mergers and acquisitions. I just love the thought of buying a business, figuring out how to make it make more money or how to reduce the expenses, either sell that to somebody else or just continue to operate it in a more profitable state. I wasn't able to go back to law school. I had other obligations. But that dream, that desire, it came to fruition when we got into apartments because basically what we do today is we buy apartment buildings that are being operated by another business owner and we find ways to either increase the revenue or decrease the expenses. And we have somebody that manages the day-to-day activity, usually some type of property management company, And it's up to us to come up with a strategy and then to manage that property manager through conference calls or reporting or drop-by visits at the property to make sure things are happening the way that we expect them to happen. We focus on Central Virginia, Central North Carolina, 
we usually buy things that are 20 to 50 units in size. There will be a time where we go to larger units, but as we learn more and more about the industry and get better equipped with being able to identify problems quickly, we, we think this is a really good size to start. These deals are usually somewhere between 750 and 1.5 million. I think our biggest deal is right at 2 million right now. Learning at an extremely rapid pace is crazy because I probably listen to 40, maybe 50 hours worth of real estate content on a weekly basis, just trying to make sure that we've got every tool in our toolkit in order to be successful at what we're doing. So I guess I can pause there and come back to Ray or James. And Wow. Uh, Jerome, this is James. Um, it's very powerful, man, particularly with your transition from pouring into the football players, the high school kids, and then now looking at using that same passion for people to pour into adults. They make the transition into real estate or they're making a transition within their careers. I think it is it says something about who you are at the core and your willingness to really want to help people. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, you and I are such good friends is because we both want to help people be their best. We want to push people to be their best um, and push people to be who they want to be and help them see themselves as we see them see the potential. So, you know, I was a little late coming in, but I, I caught most of what you've been saying. So how did you come about your first deal in real estate? So I guess I can, there's multiple first deals, right? So there's the first hard money deal, there's the first flip, there's the first apartment building. I'll talk about the apartment buildings just because we're, we're so focused, we're so locked in on those. And I actually found that first deal on market. I looked at it. I tried to put it together by myself, uh, went and went to the bank and had my little net worth and my little cash and my little credit lines and like, yeah, give me a loan and we're going to buy this thing and we're going to operate it. And, and they just kind of said, yeah, we're not interested in doing that with you. And it deflated me. I was like, what do you mean? I've got an 800 credit score. I've got however much money in the bank. I, I can make the down payment. I've got collateral. Like, wh wh what about me doesn't make you want to do the deal? They said, well, you don't have any experience. They said, well, we're going to get a property manager. Yeah, we want you to have some experience. And so that deal just kind of sat around. And then I was at one of my flip houses, and the guy pulled up, and we started talking. And he's like, yeah, I, I found this apartment deal that I want to buy. I'm going to try to put it on a contract today. And so we started talking about it the same deal. I looked at the guy and said, hey, man, please don't leave me out on this deal. I really think I can bring some value to the table. He ignored me. He went and put an offer on the property. They rejected his offer. And so then he came back and was like, hey, we tried to get it. We couldn't get it. And then I got a seat at the table. And um, we put the strategy together, made another offer, and they signed immediately. I made. I went down the path back in like January of 16. Um, January, February, I was putting a ton of effort and time into it. It was 17, January 17. And then this was maybe 
August or September when we get back under contract and we start going through our due diligence. And we don't close the thing until November 30th of 17. I mean, it was just a long, drawn-out process. So, yeah, that that was the first deal, and we're still working through that deal. It was it's extremely difficult, man. We we probably have a uh, 23 units. We are taking the rents from like 600 or 650 to 1100, 1150 per month. It's in downtown Richmond. Really desirable property. Once we get done, but you know, it's like everything. It has its challenges. Really excited that we we got into that deal because it opened up so many more doors for us. Wish some of the execution would have happened a little differently, but you know. You can't control everything. You just have to adjust as the situation unfolds. It's kind of like solitary. What's your best next step? Well, that is awesome, and it is a a great location for that particular property. Uh, A a following question to to the first deal kind of question. Uh, On that particular project, were were you managing everything in terms of getting the partners together and don't you know leading the due diligence or were you just part of a team on that one and if you were could you talk about the first project where you really took the lead in managing all of the elements of acquiring an apartment building yeah you know that's a tough question for me man so the strategy is one that i laid out due diligence work as far as questions and organizing information and making sure we had a good understanding of what we were spending and why we were spending. The majority of that was my doing or my making. We didn't actually execute on the strategy that we went into the deal with, and so that's adjusted quite a bit over the past 18 months or so. But you know, the going strategy, the strategy that we presented to the bank, I guess I should say, the one that was bankable, that was my doing. And I still sit in the asset manager role, which is kind of the point person for all things bank, writing checks to contractors and other vendors and making selections on what happens and what doesn't happen. Everybody has voting power or voting rights, but as far as being knowledgeable about all facets. So when I think about a project, you know, there's an operational piece where your property manager is renting them, renovating them is kind of the construction piece. And then there's a banking piece where you you pay your mortgage, but you also figure out how you can get proper valuations and what you can get financing and you can sell it. Like all of those capital issues would kind of fall within my realm of responsibility. Okay. So, um, you know, learning from the, that initial, deal, uh, what were some operational efficiencies or things that you potentially would would bring forward to future deals, things that you may do different or that you have done different on some of your subsequent deals? I think the most important thing that you do is you continue to let the property cash flow while you reposition it. There are some people who want to come in and get rid of all of the residents and start over fresh after you finish the construction. And there are some opportunities where you have to do that, but those are not the opportunities that we seek. We want assets that are creating revenue throughout the process. When we were flipping single-family homes, you get a property, and 
depending on your financing structure, you will either be making monthly payments for the interest if you borrow money. And I think the only real way to do that at scale is to borrow money. This was kind of the hybrid system where we could have people in place who were paying the mortgage while we made adjustments to the property that would increase the value of the property. And that increased value comes from making it more desirable and being able to charge higher rents for the same address by either upgrading the facility, you know, fresh paint, appliances, refreshed bathrooms, those types of things. Okay. Okay. Along your path and your journey, you, you have mentioned that you listen to or you consume uh, 40 or 50 hours of podcasts and uh, real estate information. If, for a person that's interested in moving in this space, besides joining the Dreamcatcher calls and, or listening to the replay via podcast, what are some other resources that you may suggest that you know that you found useful that other people may find useful? I think probably my favorite podcast is Will Barrow Profits. It's just something about Jake and Gino and their energy that it gives me the feeling that you know anybody can do it. And I don't think that's actually true. I think anybody with the proper guidance can get it done. But they just, they're kind of down-to-earth guys from up north, and they just, they, they tell all these war stories, and it's just, I find it extremely intriguing. A lot of people who are interested in real estate, they always go to bigger pockets, and I think it's probably the best advertised and maybe the most well-known real estate investing outlet, but I haven't from a multifamily standpoint, on the level that we're pursuing, I don't see that. And I, I guess the last thing is getting around like-minded people, right? So I've got a small group of folks, I, I guess it's probably five now, maybe seven, who are as interested in this as I am. And we have conversations at least daily about what we're focusing on. One person's working on community building and networking. Another person's understanding the ins and outs of retirement funds and how we can use that as a source to fund down payments. One person's scanning the market and looking for other deal opportunities. And I can continue to go down that list where everybody's kind of finding their space in the process, developing their expertise so that when the time comes, we can really scale this thing and really hit that thousand-door benchmark that we have. Yeah, I think that is absolutely key um, because a lot of times we want the benefit, but we don't want to put the work in. And I think you had mentioned this earlier. You know, what are, what are you willing to fight for? What are you willing to pay in terms of your energy? your thought process, your time for what it is you want. Everything comes at a cost. And so what are, you know, what are you really willing to push for? And I think you're absolutely right is that we, in general, as the, as the Dreamcatcher tribe, we need to take time to prepare for what it is we want. You don't wait until the opportunity presents itself to start preparing. Uh, you have to prepare now. You absolutely have to prepare now. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Like, we never know when a deal is going to show up. 
right? But we have to be ready to act because there are other people looking for the same thing. And that in and of itself, it creates competition, right? And not a whole lot of people enjoy competition. People want to be in competition with themselves. I don't even know how that how 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 you can live in a vacuum or think that you live in a vacuum. There are but so many opportunities in order to manifest your dreams. And everybody's not going to be able to do it. It's up to you on whether or not you actually make that a reality. It's up to you whether or not you let that 1% keep you from doing what you said you were going to do a year ago. Because many times that's the only difference. Yeah, that's true. That's true. There was a devotional that I was reading through the other day, and it kind of made a interesting connection or comment. This individual had been competing in, I think, a triathlon, and it was talking about, you know, really just the rigors that they had to put their body through. And they said they always tried to fight forward toward their goal. And the other comment was, if you're coasting, meaning that you're going downhill, you are not building the strength or endurance to really, you know, have your muscle memory come when you need it. You know, when it comes time to fight, you're not, you don't have the strength, you don't have the endurance to kind of get you to where you need to go. I mean, I think with all of the folks that you're talking about in terms of the group of like-minded people and the different things that the individual things that they're doing to kind of build up their strengths, they're fighting forward towards their goal. Nobody's coasting. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't think it's realistic to believe that there's no struggle in making progress. I, I don't, I don't know how you get to that new place without discomfort. And I think we cling to comfort. You know, I, I just got back from Egypt, and the one thing that stood out more than anything for me is that the most wealthy folks in Egyptian history. Um, spent immense amounts of money to try to make sure that when they left this place and went to wherever you go in the afterlife, that they were comfortable. They packed feasts. They had um, their servants and other support staff kind of put in a boat with them so that they could all just go off to wherever they believe that they go when it's all said and done. And when I think about the amount of resources that were expended in order for them to have their comfort and how that could have impacted so many more people who were living, you know, behind them or um, under their rule when they were making the pyramids, it just kind of baffles me. But then I come back to the U.S. and while we don't have pyramids here, I mean, we still have billionaires, right? And some of them have joined this challenge where they're going to give a great deal of the money away, but we also have people sitting on the side of the road who don't have a place to go in this sub-25 degree weather that we're experiencing in the mid-Atlantic. Am I a socialist? No. Do I think you should work to get what you have? Absolutely. But do I see waste in our current system? I do. And I just don't know if it's if it's sustainable or if it's the the path that, you know, we should be on or the path that I want to be on. You know, I, I, have a, I have a belief that we should have our time. I think we should 
be able to work on things that we're passionate about. Um, but outside of that, you know, I, I don't know how much more we need. I don't know what – I think we make decisions to be comfortable, and I don't know that that comfort is actually worth the sacrifice that we're, we're, we're making in order to have that comfort. Uh, yeah, yeah. I understand. I think that you said it earlier in this call. I know I've said it when I've had my call that the things that we have and the things that we do is not just for us. It's not just for me and my family, but it's for those, everybody that I'm in contact with. The the things that, the, you know, the drive that you have to help other people is not just for those that are closest to you. That drive will continuously cause us to continue to reach out and continue to do because that's part of who we are. It's not what we do. It's who we are. I think that is a key to being able to sustain that is when we can understand what makes us tick, what our why is, and who we really are. I have one last question that I have uh, or wanted to get your reaction to a uh, quote and this is quoted by, well, you can tell me who was quoted by, but I'll, I'll say the quote. I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I failed over and over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. That's a quote from Michael Jordan. I just wanted to get your reaction to kind of the, the issue of, failure and success. I remember that commercial. And I remember my immediate reaction was, who knew that he missed that many shots? Like, when you look at the highlight reels, if you look at the things that are broadcasted far and wide, you would never suspect that he didn't make more than, like, half his shots or more than 75% of his shots. It always just seemed to be an epic moment, and he always seemed to be the person that was in position to capitalize on that. And I've always wanted to be the person with the ball when the game was on the line. I wanted it to be on my shoulders because I knew how seriously I took that responsibility. I knew that people were around me or looked to me for either leadership or support or help or provision, whatever it was, and I was willing to do whatever it took to make sure that they had it. And then it wasn't until I got in a little older, a lot older, that I realized that there are people in the world who will take and take and take and take and take some more and be okay with giving you nothing in return. And it's you get taken for granted pretty quickly. And I remember I got really cynical. I started looking at relationships as transactions, and I would think about all the things that I did for a person or what I was willing to do for them, and then I would wonder, well, what have they done for me lately? And if I couldn't think of anything, it would drastically impact the way that I related with them. I hadn't been that way for the vast majority of my life. I had a friend, a very close friend, who pointed it out, and she said, are you sure you want to be that person? And I said, how can I not be when everybody around me is just trying to take advantage of me? And we probably had an hour and a half long conversation about you 
get to decide how you respond to the world. The world doesn't decide for you. You get to respond or react, and that is totally your call. I made an adjustment, and part of that adjustment was getting around more people where it was safe to give without looking to see if I'm getting. Another part of that was getting myself healthy. I think I was damaged and broken from relationships or people who were not truly on my team. And so I had to distance myself from those folks and surround myself with people who were truly interested in having mutually beneficial relationships. One where, yeah, we don't have to do transactions where you do this for me, then I do that for you. But I am bringing something to the table and I do want to make sure that your needs are being met like mine's are. And so it's allowed me to go back to that place where I don't even, I don't look around and see if I'm getting out of the relationship what, I sh- what I'm putting into it. It's allowed me to just kind of give freely and do what I feel is right in my heart and not trying to calculate, well, how will this look to this person or that person or any of that other stuff. It's just, does this feel right and following the intuition and just moving forward. And that, for me, is free, right? Because I'm not considering anything except for, am I moving out of love or fear? And if I'm moving out of love, my heart is light and I feel good about myself. I'm able to smile. When I'm in fear, you know, my head's bowed. I'm not confident in what I'm doing. I'm looking around or calling people and trying to get confirmation that I made the right choice or that I'm making the right choice. And those are not things that I feel like I should be doing or should have to do at this point in the game. I feel like right or wrong is pretty easy to know. Being able to help somebody in their time of need, I don't know that it has to be related to whether or not they paid you for it or not, or if they said hello to you. Like those conditional exchanges, I'm trying to get further and further away from the folks with the most abundance I've found. They don't operate that way. And I've had a life of abundance and I'd really like to grow that. And I feel like I grow that by doing more of the behavior that attracts it. And that's giving. Giving's what's fulfilling. Giving is what has made me significant, at least given me the feeling that I was significant anyway. And it's giving without the expectation of getting something in return, right? It's, it's genuinely, I really want this person to have whatever it is because it's going to have a positive impact on their world. Wow, that's very powerful. It's just really powerful in terms of giving with uh, no expectation of uh, getting something in return. Also, another theme that has come across through the call is that it's important to be around like-minded people or people that you know have the same goal in mind, people that can help support and encourage you and spark different ideas, because through those conversations, different ideals are formed, and that's hard to kind of uh, quantify at times, but that interaction 
helps to continue to pave the way towards success. So there's a lot of great takeaways uh, from the call, but I would encourage anyone who is part of Dream Catchers to look at some other opportunities to engage in with the group so that you can continue to be around folks that are uh, really moving in the same direction that you want to move. Yeah, and I mean, I remember when we first, I mean, what is it, three years ago now, four years ago, when we started talking about this community, this concept of surrounding your folks with people, surrounding yourself with folks who who still believe. You know, Ray and I were talking one day, and she said, do you still have a dream? Do you still, or do you just try to live through other people's dreams? And that really struck a chord with me because I had big dreams when I was a kid. I wanted to be a garbage man. <laughs> my mom um, my mom told me that wasn't big enough, though. And so she said, you can own the company. But I just, I saw the freedom piece. Like, I always wanted to be free. I, I didn't want, like, I admire my dad on so many different levels. But his Carolina half days, you know, he'd leave before six. He'd get back home after six. Like, that that wasn't exciting to me. But seeing Lonnie hanging off the back of the trash truck and he's back at home at 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, like, for me, that was just the coolest thing in the world. He was free. Now, that was just at the most fundamental level. I think we all have a revenue generation issue. And once we figure out how to make money, and for, I don't know, 99% of America, that means going to a job and trading our hours for dollars. But for that 1% of folks who figure out how to decouple time from money, and you have the freedom to do what you want throughout the day, whether it's travel. I've got a friend who he, he spends the whole day with his kids every day. Like he's got three or four young kids that are under the age of seven, and they hang out all day if they're not in school. They hang out all day every day. And, you know, I think that is just the coolest thing in the world. Now, granted, he worked 40-hour weeks when he was in high school, and he lived in houses that didn't have any heat, and he built stuff himself so that it was as cheap as possible. But now he's gotten to a place where he has this extreme level of freedom where, you know, he wants to spend his time with his kids, and that's what he gets to do every day. And their house is paid for, so he doesn't have a mortgage payment. They drive really modest vehicles, so they were able to pay for those in cash. And just the money that comes in from their rental properties takes care of their food and whatever other expenses. Are they extremely comfortable? I think that's dependent on how you define comfort. But what they do have is an abundance of time, and that is the, that's more valuable than the money. But again, he was willing to pay his price. He was willing to pay the price in order to be able to live the life that he lives today. And it's one that I, I want to live. I I want my time decoupled from dollars. And I I see apartments as a viable way to accomplish that. You know, we'll we'll do somewhere between thirteen and fifteen thousand dollars in top line revenue in apartments in the month of February. When our building in Richmond comes online, we'll add on another 
$25,000 a month in top-line revenue. Now, I don't get to keep all that, but that's why we we talk about the 100 people. If, if we can split that money up with a bunch of different people and operate these apartments pro- uh, profitably, you know, that money will be spread. And, you know, I have this dream of splitting up over $8 million a year with folks. And, you know, even if you only have, what, 1% of that $8 million, it's like eighty grand a year. I think most people can live their lives off that 80000 And so maybe I'm crazy, but I, I think it's something that's very attainable over the next 10 years. And we're going to do the work to make sure that we're getting in great deals. We're going to do the work to make sure that the bank enjoys what we're putting in front of them so that they can be one of our partners and be one of the largest um, financial partners that we have. We're going to do the work so that brokers know that we are the ones that will close the deal once we get in contract. And then we're the ones that property managers want to work with because we care about the property. We care about the residents. You know, people are going to want that experience that we as a collective deliver to the marketplace. And, you know, it's worked for Chick-fil-A. And I think we can absolutely replicate that and be extremely successful without this nonsense of sending people home at Thanksgiving or Christmas each year because we're trying to hit a quarterly goal, an arbitrary quarterly goal. Well said. Um, If people are interested in finding out more about your current opportunities or future opportunities, what's the best way for them to go about that? Either reaching out to me direct or reaching out to whoever shared the opportunity with you. I imagine you have my phone number or email based on, you know, participating in the call. If not, phone number 757-207-0529. I welcome a call or text and, well, prefer a text so we can set up a time to talk and then that way I can give you the attention that the conversation deserves versus being kind of caught in the middle of something. As James knows, I spend a great deal of time in Lowe's right now working on these different renovations and finding material and some other stuff. And that's more of me getting a really firm understanding of what things cost and what options are out there more than you know trying to save money or any of those other things. I, I want to be an expert. I want to be seen as somebody who truly understands their craft. Knowing your numbers cold is important to me. And so whether it's knowing what a bag of concrete costs or knowing how much it costs to run a unit, those are questions that I want to be able to answer quickly and without having to do a bunch of reference. And so we'll continue to make those sacrifices and in the end, I think it's going to pay great dividends for us and everybody who decides to participate in this journey that we're on. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, Jerome, I don't have any more questions or comments. I guess we'll, uh, as normal, open up the line if people have any comments or questions. Jerome, this is Devin. Did you have a mentor starting out? It's kind of a difficult question to ask because I see our answer because I see, so I found several thought leaders that, and I I consume just about every piece of content they put out. And so do I have a person that I call today that I do? When I started, I didn't. And that was because I wasn't able to find somebody who seemed to understand 
as much as I had already learned before I jumped into it. There are some folks who are investing who don't even know some of the vernacular that's commonly used in the industry. They don't know what a cap rate is. They don't have any idea on how to calculate expense ratio. Um, they don't know what gross potential rents are. It's just it's a different language, and it's not complex by any stretch of the imagination. But the p- folks that I was coming in contact with, their dream was a duplex or their dream was a quad. That was multifamily for them. And kind of the big education groups like Lifestyles Unlimited, which is a group out of Texas, you know, they didn't have stuff in the immediate market that I was in. And I'm a, I'm a face-to-face person more often than not. So I wanted to be able to look the person who was teaching me how to do this in the face. But it's interesting because one of the podcasts that I follow is um, some guys out of Texas called Old Capital. They're lenders. And one of their guests was in the process of doing something very similar to what we're doing in Richmond. And so I reached out to him and said, hey, man, I'd love to come down to Dallas and see what you're doing. And he said, all right, come on. And so two weeks later, I was on a plane and I spent the weekend with him on his property, seeing how he ran his investor meeting, seeing their selections for their renovation, and just kind of learning for him how he got his start and, you know, how that transferred into him leading his own deal and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I guess that kind of goes back to paying the price. So when I finally did find somebody who was doing something similar to what I wanted to do, I went and bought a plane ticket and allocated, I don't know, 36 hours of my life to figuring out what he knew that I didn't know and came back with more confidence, um, got some validation that we were on the right path for a lot of things that we were doing and um, kind of put that stuff into action. So yes and no. If I could do it all over again, there's, I'd probably find somebody who was doing it at a higher level than what I started out with, but I didn't, I didn't see a, a path to that. So I just did what the next best logical step was for me, and that was doubling down on podcasts, watching as many YouTube videos as I could, reading books, going to seminars, conferences, just kind of paying the price until I could figure out you know, what I was going to focus on. For me, you know, I'm an operations guy at at the core. I'm the one that figures out how to get it done. After we figure out what we're going to do, I'm the one that figures out how to get it done. So finding an operations person, it's it's pretty rare in this business because they rely on a property manager to do this or they rely on a construction person to do that. I got my contractor's license. I kind of know how to build some stuff, so didn't really need a person for that. I wanted to be the person that was the hub. I wanted to be in the middle of all of it. I wanted to have enough understanding of the different processes that I could ask the right questions to make sure we were getting all that we could for the dollars we were spending. And I think each day that I'm on this path, I learn something new, but I think we're getting there. I think we're we're getting closer to what I hope will be a a really long and profitable career in this space. Any other questions? Uh, I do. I have one. Um, my name is O'Brien, and I, uh, the question is, 
when you do your uh, construction on your on your place uh, or your apartments, do you have a, a certain crew that you stick with, or uh, or how does that go? Do you allow them to bid on what they'll be able to do for you, or how does that work actually? It depends on the project. I'm glad you made the call, bro. Um, it, it depends on the project. I what I've learned really quickly from flipping houses is the fewer people you have engaged, the better off you are. Um, but that's a double-edged sword because if somebody gets upset with you and decides to disappear, they can derail your whole business. I'm not looking for the cheapest price. I'm looking for certainty of completion. So Joe Blow may show up and they may be 20% cheaper. I've learned the hard way that 20% cheaper and not finishing is a whole lot worse than paying the 20% and knowing that your guy's going to get it done. You know, we've got one crew here in Greensboro. It's not uncommon to pull up on the property and 9 o'clock, they're still working, 9 o'clock at night. If they got a deadline, they're going to meet it. If As long as they got the material to work with, they're going to keep going and getting things done the way that they need to be done. So a good contractor is like gold. I mean, you it's, it's like a, maybe better said, it's like a good woman. Like you do what you have to do in order to keep them on the team because it can turn your life upside down if you don't. But if you don't have a source, if you're just getting started, if it's a new market or a new city, you you will want to price things out, but you're also going to want to talk to people who know that the person or the company can get it done. So you're looking for referrals and it's not hey can I have a referral it's do you know somebody that can you recommend somebody to me that you trust in order to complete this task that is very different from can you give me a referral on a contractor okay and I guess the other piece of that is if you budgeted a certain number and a person that you're confident can complete the project is within your budget going out for bid just for the sake of going out for bid may not be the best use of your time. Because again, we're, we're focused on freeing up time. We're focused on, we're we're not focused on the penny or the dime or the dollar for that matter. Four. If I may, I got just one more question. As far as cap rates are concerned, when you're looking or you're researching the market, would you say what what would be the average cap rate that'll let you know it's kind of good or steady or does that does it even matter? Do you look at it? Do you focus at a certain? I mean, focus on a certain cap rate, or are you you know how how does that work with you? How do you typically go about that? Yeah, so cap rate is basically what folks in a commercial space use to compare different properties. We look at cap rate, but it's kind of in a different space than how it's traditionally used. For us, cap rate is probably the last thing we look at. We're trying to buy value. We're looking for opportunities to force appreciation in a property. And so just because it made, I don't know, $100,000 last year and they're selling it for a million, which would be a 10 cap, it doesn't mean that it's better than a property that made $80,000 last year and they're selling it for a million. If we can take the property that made 80000 and make it make 160000 and that $100,000 property can only go make 140000 we're probably going to buy the one that made that can go from eighty to one hundred and sixty 
because in the end, after we execute our strategy, that property is going to be the more valuable one for us. And, you know, our primary metric is forced appreciation. That's where we make the vast majority of our money. We want to have yield along the way, but that's more to satisfy the bank and the mortgage that comes with the property and not so much what our payday is. Our, we, our paydays are big when we refinance and when we sell, not so much how much money we make e- each year. So uh, the other thing with the higher cap rates is the higher the cap rate, the bigger the risk. And so you have to adjust or you just have to be cognizant that you're, you're investing in a property that is either dilapidated or in an area that's not, not very desirable. And so since we're on the edge of the economy making an adjustment, when you buy dilapidated or you buy more specifically in an area that's not as desirable, those areas are the ones that usually suffer the most during corrections. The dilapidated project, it can be fixed as long as you're property capitalized when you go into the project. But if you're not, then on the back end, you'll be in a, in a tough predicament because you don't have the funds available to repair the project so that you can get the rents that you need in order to make the project work. That makes sense? Plenty, plenty. I, just, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't know because I know a lot of the properties, you know, it would be Class C, and that's a lot that's available in Class You don't have that many Class C. They're not building any more Class C properties, so... What you were saying as far as you and your team going in and adding value to that property, I know where I'm at down here in Baton Rouge, I've noticed a lot of the areas that they've actually been, uh, that were considered bad or around classy areas, you know, they're, they're gentrifying. And so, like, you know, just I wish I would have been on this, on this journey for knowledge two or three years earlier, but I, I'm not complaining, but it's just like, man, if I would have knew that, I could have did this or made that move. So that's why I say the cap rate be higher, I guess, because, you know, they Section 8 or, or they make sure they're Section 8. But like you were saying, I feel like if I put, you know, you put the right amount of money into them and they find out, you know, they zone your area for certain schools and now, you know, there you go. That's, that's a gold mine, you know? Yeah. I mean, the location, and it's just a cliche, but – the location is far more important than the condition of the property. And I, I, you don't want to buy a dump because you end up spending more money than what the property is worth if you're not careful. But if you can find a strong location, then your investment is safe for the most part. And then it's just a matter of operating effectively. So, But don't search so much on the cap rate as much as looking for places where you've got an advantage or an opportunity to make the business run better, whether the property's under rented, whether the property has expenses that are really high for no apparent reason. Um, those are the two most important things, I think, in making the decision. Jerome, Jerome, I would add, you also have to look at whether or not you're going to be able to, um, you know, after you, renovate the property or repair the property, what rents are you going to be getting there? Um, that is a, a key factor. Um, so it's not just the cap rate. So you're looking at the location, and then you're using other tools or resources to figure out what are market rents in that area. 
Um, so that that's a I think that plays a big role too. I agree, hundred percent. You got any more, Brian? No, I thank you, man. I'm taking notes, but but thank you. Can we get into uh, into markets? Like, why did you choose Greensboro? I know when I listen to um, different podcasts, when they come when it comes to North Carolina, they always either talking about Charlotte or the Raleigh area. So why did you choose Greensboro and um, and Richmond? Yeah, so I'm I'm a lot more passionate about Greensboro than Richmond, but I, Richmond was interesting because of the number of Fortune 500s that headquartered there, and so our focus on workforce housing um, and maybe young professionals at the other kind of the upper end of that spectrum, um, which is what that property that we're doing in downtown Richmond is catering to. Um, we're looking for places that have a diverse workforce. Um, like I'm from Fayetteville. I didn't pursue Fayetteville because of such de- a heavy dependence on the military. Um, when I think about Greensboro and even Richmond, like you've got healthcare, you have um, a number of Fortune 500 companies in the in the area with significant presence. You have in Greensboro and even in Richmond a lot of educational institutions. Um, and so when you look at that, you, what you don't see in a recession or an adjustment is a lot of people being unemployed. You know, the rates probably stay below 10%, maybe 12 at kind of the peak. But, you know, there's not mass unemployment. Um, I shifted from Richmond to Greensboro because the price per unit compared to the amount of rent you get for that unit is more favorable in the Greensboro market. And, you know, that was probably my biggest shock leaving from North Carolina and going to Virginia was the price of housing. Um, And then when I was, when I made that transition, there were a lot of people coming from New Jersey and New York um, moving to Richmond when Capital One relocated their headquarters and, they saw the housing and they thought it was a deal. And so that even further elevated the price of housing. And um, a lot of people don't know this, but rental pricing correlates with mortgage notes. And so they they kind of stay hand in hand. And the mortgage note, of course, is tied to the sale price of the property. So if we're able to basically... Um, rent our properties for what the median household can afford and we can make sure that what we pay for that property is in a strong relationship with the rental income or the rental payment that they can afford, then it makes for solid investment in the market. And so that's why we like those two markets. Um, From my opinion, my perspective, Raleigh and Charlotte are growing too rapidly and well I guess they're not growing too rapidly they're growing as rapidly as they are and the impact that it's having on the housing market I don't think is sustainable for long term and so what that means is if there's a correction it's going to be more violent than you will get in an area like Greensboro where you know the growth is steady at two three four five percent a year 
versus the bigger numbers that you're seeing in the larger metros in in North Carolina. Um, yeah, and in those in those larger metros, they're also trying to build in anticipation of that population growth. And so, yeah, you, so you could easily get into, yeah, you could easily get into a situation where when uh, there is some type of a downturn that they've overbuilt in those areas. Um, it doesn't mean, again, you know, just at the price points that we've been looking at, it makes sense definitely to look at Greensboro and um, Mrs. James. And I, I'm here in Richmond, Virginia. I'm always looking for stuff in Richmond, but there's nothing that has come up in a long time that we will be interested in. And then Devin, I think the other piece of that for me is we've we've been able to build the relationships in the market. So we get access to deals that don't hit MLS or LoopNet or City Feed or some of these other far reaching platforms. We get early previews and we get opportunity to make a offer on the deals before other people see them. Um, and, you know, the more deals we close, the more we expect that trend to continue. Um, but you get your best deals when you're not competing with the masses. Um, you know, this deal that we're closing in a couple of weeks is a perfect example. It was on, it was in the marketplace. It wasn't even on um, market for 30 days, and we were able to get it at, you know, a 15% discount without much negotiating with the broker or the seller. Um, that doesn't typically happen. And it's interesting because had we bought this same property in Texas, um, the seller would have asked us to put down $100,000 of hard money, non-refundable money, as soon as we went under contract. So, you know, all the markets are local and they have different um, demands to differentiate yourself from the crowd. Now, I'll say to anyone that's uh, on the call, if you come across something that you think is would be of interest, shoot us an email. Um, you know, we'll we'll be more than happy to kind of look and see what things are out there. Well, thank you, James. You've been an excellent host. Uh, it has been my pleasure. I really appreciate you. I'm helping to, you know, um, shape the conversation and and ask. Um, you know, those really detailed questions to help those who are on the call and those who will hear the call um, with their journeys because I know we've had a lot of interest um, where the real estate uh, is concerned. So thank you again for that. So we, um, we're running a little long for this call, um, but I do understand that there were um, some very um, interesting questions uh, and people who were taking notes. So I am just going to uh, make sure that we were able to get all the questions that you guys had answered. Um, if you were not able to ask a question or if you are um, not sure about asking it uh, in this setting, then certainly uh, reach out to Jerome uh, via email and make sure that you send your question over so that um, he can reply. Um, before we close the call out, are there any more questions for this group? Okay, hearing none. Um, if that concludes the questions, I'd like to wrap up by saying thank you, uh, Jerome and Devin. I heard you jump in there for a couple questions, and there was another voice on the line that I didn't recognize, but I also thank you 
for um, asking questions uh, and being a part of the call. I'd like to say to the others, if you like what you heard tonight and you want to learn more about dream catchers, please visit our website at dreamshouldbereal.com. If you can think of someone who would benefit from these types of opportunities and you're willing to share what we're doing with them, we would really appreciate it. Guys, the calls, what what we heard tonight, this is really what the call of people kind of coming together and um, bouncing ideas off of each other, um, you know, having like minds and helping uh, basically to, to move these dreams forward. We want to make sure that we are doing that with you in this year uh, so as we progress through the calls, um, we really want you to stay connected uh, to those that are amongst the tribe. So please make the effort to take advantage of these opportunities. Uh, say um, Happy New Year to everyone, and we will talk with you again in a few weeks. Good night. Thank you.